This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Why is it that people are so fascinated by celebrities? Take a look at the magazine stand or the gossip websites or the magazine entertainment shows and you'll find endless stories of the rich and famous. And there are plenty of fans eager to devour details of these stars from where they eat dinner to who they're wearing, even intimate details of their relationships. But celebrity culture isn't a new phenomenon. It's been going on for as long as there has been entertainment, whether you're talking about stage or screen or other pieces. And our next guest says obsession with fame and the famous isn't something that happens by accident, nor through the media coverage alone. She says it's all shaped by journalists, the publics, and even the celebrities themselves. Sharon Marcus is a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. Her new book is titled The Drama of Celebrity, and she joins us here in studio. Nice meeting you. Nice to meet you. How how was it that you got onto this as, as a topic for a book? Because, I mean, obviously, to a degree, we see every day now, because of social media and all these different elements, how celebrity is focused on more and more. There's a personal answer to that question, which is even as a very young child, I was interested in celebrity. As a sign of my future nerddom, I was interested in dead celebrities. So where my yeah. friends were talking about David Cassidy or Captain and Tennille or the which Charlie's Angel they liked the best, yeah. I was really interested in Elizabeth Taylor and old Hollywood. So right. this was the 1970s, and I was looking back to the 1930s and 40s. And I think part of what I was interested in there is what we're always interested in, in with celebrities, which is you have an image of someone. It might be very compelling because they're beautiful or they're great at sports or they're charismatic, and you want to know more. Right. So that was my introduction to celebrity, and I was always interested in why I and other people were so interested in celebrity. Right. Then there's an academic scholarly answer to that question. My last book was about Victorian England, and I got very interested in Oscar Wilde when I was writing it. And the more I learned about him, the more surprised I was to learn that he started out as a really popular celebrity. Mm -hmm. What we know about him now is that in his 40s, around 1895, he was put in jail for, quote unquote, gross indecency between men, which was a crime at the time. What we forget is that when he was in his late 20s, he was famous in the United States and in England for being eccentric. In fact, yeah. he was kind of like the David Bowie of his time. He yeah. started out yeah. with the David Bowie thing. You know, he had long hair. He wore dandyish, foppish clothes. And the question that intrigued me there is why do we so often reward people who are doing something antisocial? Why are we so fascinated with defiant celebrities who break the rules and who change the norms? And so those were the two questions that kind of got me going on this project. So the person you focus on a lot in this book is by the name of Sarah Bernhardt. So tell us more about, about Sarah and how she kind of fits into that, into that territory. Sure. Well, today, Sarah Bernhardt, is somebody that most people confuse with the comedian and singer Sandra Bernhardt, who right. had a brief moment That's of right. mainstream fame when she was kind of sort of Madonna's girlfriend back in the day. But Sarah Bernhardt was born in 1844 in France, which was then the theater capital of the world. And right. very young, she became an actress, classically trained in the French National Theater, which was considered the best theater in the world. And... What she did that was so interesting was she established herself as a great actress, mm -hmm. truly talented, say Meryl Streep level. 
She also established herself as a fascinating personality, someone who kept exotic pets mm -hmm. like a lion and a oh, monkey, a wow. monkey named Darwin and so <laughs> many dogs and so many birds. And she, uh, the other things she did to establish herself as a personality would get into a lot of fights with her managers and so show that she was feisty and independent and had her own mind and had herself photographed sleeping in a coffin. Oh, wow. So just, you know, <laughs> weird. She was she knew she could get attention by presenting herself as different. Right. So the third thing that made her such a great celebrity was that she was a terrific showwoman. So she had the talent of a Meryl Streep, the bizarreness and boldness of someone like Cardi B. And she was like P.T. Barnum or a great TV showrunner today or a right. great publicist. She was her own publicist. She knew that if she had herself photographed sleeping in a coffin, everyone would talk <laughs> about her. Right. She understood new media and took advantage of them, whether it was the mass newspapers of the day that whose circulations were shooting up all the time and attracting more and more readers, whether it was photography, which was just beginning to be something that was accessible to the average person. So just like... When the iPhone became something everyone had, yeah. everyone started putting all this content on iPhones. When yeah. the photograph became something anyone could buy, everyone who wanted to be famous made sure they were photographed. She also took control of her own career by leaving the French National Theater at a relatively young age. In her 30s, she went and did a tour of the United States that made her kind of the equivalent of a millionaire at yeah. the time. And from then on, she bought... She leased or bought her own theaters, hired her own fellow actors, chose what roles she would play, sometimes commissioned playwrights to write roles for her, right. and really had a lot of autonomy over her career. And that that aspect of control that you bring up is a theme that you talk about through the book and the fact that she had this. And we're starting to see with some of the artists today them trying to reclaim more and more of that control. But you also talk about the fact that there was a time in, I guess, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, especially in Hollywood, where you had the, the big movie studio moguls who truly had taken the, the control away from a lot of the artists. So this is a really interesting point about the history of celebrity from the point of view of the history of business, of economics, of entertainment as an industry. Theater was really decentralized. It was very hard to even make money in the theater because it was really unpredictable who would come, which plays would be successful. But actors in the 19th century, if they were big stars, the majority of the big stars, so say the top 10 actors of the 19th century, Sarah Bernhardt, Edwin Booth in the United States, mm -hmm. Henry Irving in England, they bought their own theaters and created a kind of personally, vertically integrated industry. They were the director, they were the star, they were the creative managers. Then when film came along, it was creating a separation between the actors and the producers. Mm -hmm. And the people who put up the capital, Louis B. Mayer, Adolf Zucker, they wanted to have some control over their product. And that meant having control over their workers. And those big studio moguls had a bit of a conundrum as entrepreneurs. They knew that stars could guarantee an audience. 
then as now. Right. People would go to movies because they recognize the actors in them and they like them. And that was, you don't know if you're going to like the story. You don't know anything about the movie except, oh, I like Mary Pickford, so I'm going to go see this. So they needed stars and they needed the stars to have names. But the bigger the stars got, the more they wanted to be paid. Yeah. The more they yeah. wanted to decide who they worked with, what movies they made. And they didn't always necessarily have the same canny insight into the market that the producers had. So what the producers started doing is taking very young talent and signing young unknowns up to highly restrictive long-term contracts. Mm -hmm. So when Marilyn Monroe or Joan Crawford, some of the biggest stars, respectively, of the 50s, 60s for Monroe and the 30s, 40s for Crawford, when they break into the movies... They're young starlets, naive. They don't really yep. know what's going on. They have no clout because no one knows who they are. Yep. And they're signed to a contract that says you're going to work for the studio for 10 years. Yeah. We decide what you get paid. We tell you what to do. And then when they start getting really big, like Marilyn Monroe, who we think of as kind of naive and babyish, she was a shark when it came to negotiating. Hmm. And she started saying, once she became famous and beloved, in part because she was extremely solicitous of the media, right. she got along great with journalists, and she knew how to use them to negotiate with her boss. She said, no, I don't want to make that movie. Actually, I want you to pay me more. Her boss at the time, Harry Cohn at Columbia Studios, said, yeah, you know what, I'm suspending you. She said, okay. I'm going to go marry Joe DiMaggio, the most famous baseball player of that the time, moment. Yeah, yeah. And that's going to get me a lot of publicity. And I'm going to have a chance to talk to the press. And I'm going to say how sorry I am that I can't make the movies that I want to make and that you, Harry Cohen, are so mean and a big bad bully. Then I'm going to go to Korea and entertain 100,000 troops and be all over every newspaper in the United States entertaining the troops. And Harry Cohen caved. And he said, okay, you don't have to make the movie you don't want to make, and I'll let you make more money, and I'll give you a higher percentage of the net profits of yeah. your next film. So Hollywood, as a business model, was always about total control. It wasn't just control of the actors. For decades, Hollywood producers also owned all the theaters, and they told right. the theaters what to play. And that was in place until there was a, a lawsuit, and the theater sued, and it was seen to be too much of a monopoly, and they couldn't do that anymore. So then what it, What do you think is, is leading to kind of this shift now that we're seeing with people like Taylor Swift and, and other artists who are really trying to reclaim a lot of that control, managing their content even more so, especially in this digital age where it's not so much about the actual record sale. It's it's the downloads. It's, you know, getting people into the, the big stadiums for the 70,000 concert uh, exactly. type of situation. So the studio system breaks down in the 1960s for a whole bunch of reasons. And what a lot of people who study celebrity have said is, oh, that was the end of the era of great stardom. But if, as I've done, you take a longer view and really dive more deeply into what was going on in the 19th century, the picture that emerges is that Hollywood was an anomaly. It's actually never been the case in other periods and in other industries that it was so easy to control the stars. And yeah. what I argue in my book is that what celebrity culture is, is the constant negotiation between media, and that can be producers, it can be journalists, it can be radio interviews, it can be photographers, 
and celebrities themselves and the public. And no one group controls the narrative. No right. one group controls the outcome. That's part of the reason we're so engaged. We don't know how it's going to turn out. And we have now returned with not just the Internet, but let's take it back a little bit, the rise of the home video or you know, sure. the mobile video camera. A lot of what we see today owes its roots to the 80s and 90s when anybody could get a relatively cheap video camera and take videos of themselves. Right. But there was no way to distribute them to a large number of people. That's what the phones have allowed. So what we see today is celebrities, as you point out, can have much more direct contact with their publics yeah. without having to deal with gatekeepers like heritage newspapers who are only going to interview a very small number of people without having to be completely subject to record producers or the you know the many I mean it used to be both the public and celebrities were really limited by a smaller number of 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 gatekeepers right. and they're gone. Now the problem we have is it's hard to know in the public how to find anything <laughs> that interests us, yeah, right? Yeah. And as a celebrity, anybody can have a Twitter account or a YouTube channel, but how are you going to make sure that people come to it? But it's interesting. I, I guess then in in your description, where the public is concerned, that in many cases the public is kind of the conduit in this process. That is an interesting way to think about it. I think we're used to thinking of the media as the conduit. Right, exactly. But I would agree with your way of putting it. It is, in fact, the public that's the conduit because what I also saw by taking this long historical view is that although we think of the media as making decisions and being in control of who is in the public eye, the media is very responsive to what interests the public. And the media sure. is always trying to figure out what do people care about. Sometimes that's guesswork. Sometimes it's based on word of mouth. Sometimes, as now, it feels to me like these days, the newspapers are following social media more than the other way around. Yeah. And if something blows up on social media, it becomes a news story. Yes, it does. Yep. And and to go back to the question you were asking about today, how the celebrities relate to the to the producers of media, there is a really interesting example when Apple rolled out Apple Music. They were initially not going to pay the artists. Yeah. Because you don't necessarily have to. Right. Yeah. And Taylor Swift took to I believe it was Instagram, some yeah. major social media platform with an open letter to Apple Music in which and it was a very trenchant, articulate letter. Taylor Swift is actually, I think, a very intelligent person. And she said, we don't ask you for free iPhones. So why are yeah. you asking us for free music? I don't need the money, but I'm writing this on behalf of artists who do. And Apple Music, like Harry Cohn with Marilyn Monroe, caved because Taylor Swift commands a huge audience Absolutely. and she could have gotten millions of people who love music to not sign on to Apple Music if she they knew that she didn't actually make that threat but they knew that that could be her next step so that's an example of a celebrity really driving economic policy of a, like a major major company but you also talk about the fact that there you have to factor in at times the social component as well with a celebrity that obviously is well known you mentioned Muhammad Ali mm -hmm. in the book Muhammad Ali one of the if not the best boxers in the history of boxing but he obviously in the 
1960s had a very social component to him, which drew a lot of attention, both positive and negative, from the public. And, and so that social component becomes a factor and a, and a piece to this as well. Social and, I would also say, political. So. Right. I'll talk about Muhammad Ali in a second, but again, look at Taylor Swift. You know, when we talk about the Me Too movement, I think a lot of us forget that right before the big Me Too story broke with Harvey Weinstein, Taylor Swift was in the news because she sued a photographer who groped her. And she sued him for a penny because she was making a point that this wasn't about money. It was about it not being okay. And she was extremely articulate on the stand. Many celebrities have a real uh, aplomb dealing with the public. They're able to improvise. They're able to be spontaneous, but also come off being very calm and collected, which is what you need to do if you're in the courtroom. And she won. And she really raised a lot of attention to the ways that even the most famous, supposedly powerful young women are being exploited and mistreated. And I think that that was a a crucial example of a celebrity using their media presence and their influence for a social and political purpose. Muhammad Ali, as an African-American boxer in the 60s, raised awareness about civil rights, about the Vietnam War. He refused to serve in the Vietnam War well before there was a massive protest movement against the Vietnam War. And as a result, he was put in jail during the height of his what would have been the height of his boxing career. And I think all of that was a great example of how not all, but many celebrities go against the grain. Mm -hmm. They take unpopular positions that then become the norm in many ways. But I, I would imagine that, that to a degree, that piece to it has kind of evolved over time. Because when you think of the 60s, as you mentioned, there was a lot of blowback against Muhammad Ali, especially considering that those were his personal beliefs and he was trying to look out for his personal beliefs and, and other people. Now, today, I think we have a different mindset about, you know, we are looking out for ourselves. We are looking out for, you know, some of the issues that that, that are very important to us. In comparison to what business as a as a piece is looking out for, I think it's important to, to note that a lot of the people that, that are making these moves today are making them for very important reasons, and they shouldn't be scathed in the, in the public media for doing this. They shouldn't be, but at the same time, celebrity thrives on controversy. So True, yeah. It's... It's a long game. In the short term, maybe you'll be boycotted for taking an unpopular position, a position that's unpopular with at least one segment of the population. But that can also build your audience. It can create loyalty among more people. It can get you more attention. And I think that the, the biggest celebrities are not necessarily cold and calculating and conscious about how celebrity works, but they grasp implicitly and intuitively that you can go farther and become better known taking unpopular positions instead of being timid and only going with what is safe. 
How how do you think that, that some of these dynamics have changed today in the age of the internet, where we have people on YouTube that have become famous for posting different videos uh, of themselves? You know the, the, that that kind of culture, I think, has has maybe changed the dynamic a little bit. So I think what's really different is how people are able basically to go on auditions for mass attention via a a platform like YouTube. Yeah. In the olden days, if you wanted to reach a large public, you had to audition for a th- an actual play, yeah. or you had to do a screen test for a studio, or you had to cut a demo for a record company. And now you can just bring it directly to the public. But yeah. again, as we said before, it's a little deceptive because getting it actually in front of the, you know, you can put your stuff on YouTube. I don't think anybody really understands yet why some people on YouTube end up with 10,000 followers and some end up with 1 million and some end up with three, you know, and they're all thumbs down. But I would also say here again that it, we shouldn't overstate how new this is. In the 19th century, if you go back and read a newspaper, every week there's some flavor of the week there's some nine-day wonder. Somebody rescued a baby from the train tracks and sure. they're famous for three days. And if you lived in that moment, you knew their name. But there's no way that anybody even 10 years later would know who they are. But Sarah Bernhardt, going back to her for a second, in how you you write this book and lay it out, she really was, was one of the first people to kind of get this as a as an idea of promotion and, a, and as an idea of, of building that level of celebrity, correct? Yes, and she understood how to use the newspapers. She would befriend some editors, and then in other cases, if people published coverage of her that she didn't like, she would write letters protesting it, demand that they be published. Sometimes she sued the papers. And either way, whether the coverage was negative or positive, she kept herself in the news. She took positions, I mean, speaking of taking social and political positions, she took positions both controversial and popular. So during World War I, she traveled in the United States, encouraging the United States to join the war and help support France. And she would do shows that showed how France was suffering in the war. She also, on that same tour, visited San Quentin and published an op-ed protesting capital punishment as being inhumane. So she, she, interestingly, said at many times that she didn't really believe women should get the vote. She was never shy about taking a position and one of the ways of thinking about that is it always kept her topical yeah, up to the moment and in the news. Well, you know, one of the other people you, you bring up in the book is Princess Diana. And, and when you think about somebody over the last 50 years or so, here, here is a woman who was a school teacher, obviously gets thrown into the public spotlight by marrying Prince Charles, uh, has her time, you know, as part of the royal family, gets divorced, uh, and it ended up being that celebrity that unfortunately, kind of in a roundabout way, led to her demise, her death, yet still today, years later, she is still thought of in such gracious, uh, gracious thoughts. It's really interesting that you bring her up because I talk about her in the introduction Because when I would try to find an example of a celebrity that everyone had heard of, including young people, Princess Di was somebody that everyone had heard of. They hadn't heard of Sarah Bernhardt. They were a little hazy on Marilyn Monroe. In terms of today's celebrities, it's hard to find someone that everyone has heard of. If the young people know who they are, the older people don't. But Princess Di was this universal celebrity. And 
One of the most interesting things that I learned about her when I did more research on her was a point Tina Brown makes in her biography of Princess Diana, which was that one of the reasons that she was able to become so famous so fast and even bring herself in some ways to Prince Charles's attention and maneuver him into marriage was that she really knew how to work the press. Why? She wasn't a great mastermind. She read the tabloid press. She had absorbed the tabloid press and soap operas all her life. And so she understood how to make herself into a good story. And the other thing that the example of Princess Di brings up, I think, is that not all celebrities can cope with and manage their celebrity. Someone like Sarah Bernhardt was a celebrity from the 1860s until her death in the 1920s. Six decades. She was, you know... For an actress to be that well-known and beloved, even when she's in her 60s or 70s, it's really something. But she was someone who had a strong support system and a very strong will and just seemed able to handle both her success and the conflicts and scandals and, you know, trolling (laughs) that come with it. Princess Diana... More fragile. Kurt Cobain, more fragile. Amy Winehouse, more fragile. Not everybody can handle it. Great meeting you. It's a fantastic book, Sharon. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you. The book, again, is The Drama of Celebrity. Sharon Marcus, uh, professor at Columbia University, joining us here in studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 